0: Hey there, I'm Amadal Yakhbar, and this is See Something, Say Something, the BuzzFeed podcast where we drink tea, tell stories, and talk about big life questions. Before we start the show off, I have to give shoutouts to the Kaminas, who provided our theme song, and let's be honest, inspiration for the name of the show.
1: If you see something, you better,
0: you better say something, nothing at all. At all. I'm your host, Amad al I'm a writer at BuzzFeed, and I've written about a lot of stuff for the website. But even before I came here, I've been thinking about American Muslims. I'm obsessed with, like, how to capture this beautiful, complicated, sometimes crazy community I've grown up in. But every time I write about Muslims, I feel this incredibly heavy burden of representation. I think about, you know... Will what I'm writing confirm stereotypes about Muslims or battle them? You know, can writing even break stereotypes? Is that our role? Um, Have I included other types of Muslim identities besides my own? And so on this show, I want to remove that burden of representation. This is a show where we talk about our personal experiences and not for Muslims or on behalf of all Muslims like we are so often asked to do. Like me, for instance, I'm the son of two Pakistani immigrants. Uh, I grew up in Michigan, go blue. I think is for social gatherings and coffee is a solitary thing. I don't pray too often, but every Friday I try to head up to the mosque near our office for Friday prayers. And afterwards, I grab a cup of tea. Speaking of tea, I always offer it to my guests. So this seems like a good time to introduce Nabiha Sayed and Johanna Bouya. Nabiha is a lawyer who has worked on free speech, women's rights, and media. She's currently assistant general counsel here at BuzzFeed. Uh, Nabiha, when you drink tea, how do you take your tea?
2: Black. 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 No milk, no sugar, no nothing. I am prepared to live in the most dire of circumstances. (laughs) Okay. That's true. I just want straight caffeine in my cup. None of this fancy stuff.
0: And Johanna Buya is a senior editor and tech reporter at Recode who focuses on transportation and the ride-sharing economy. Uh, Johanna, how do you take your tea?
1: What is the point of tea without milk? I, I don't know. understand. F- <laughs> just do you know? drink milk plain. If you what? want milk, drink milk. Who, if you want tea, who drink tea. drinks
0: milk plain? See, I do. Just, tea is just scented water. Okay, I, let's be honest. i it. needs it. some body. The idea right now is to, like, serve the guest tea every time. And it just kind of reminded me of, like, I don't know, my household. Anytime we had guests, it was rounds and rounds of tea. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Never it was, stops. And you always had to do say, you know, how do you take your tea? How do you mm-hmm. take your tea? And you got to the point where you remember... Yeah. What everyone's tea order is.
1: Wow, you're a better housewife than I am.
0: But I feel like you know re- re- recreating that here. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: totally. You should totally do that. Also, people used to judge you on how orange your tea was.
2: Yeah, you know, you mean like
0: how you mean like, like it how milky? It is. Yeah, yeah, basically.
2: I just remember aunties referring to people's skin color based oh on my how gosh. the tea I color. I didn't want to say it. Yeah. I didn't want to say. Well, it. I said, I went there. I I'm, went there.
1: I am dark in my my mom is like pale white, so they were really disappointed when I was born.
0: <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, my family did that too, and I don't know. It always felt kind of weird. It's. Oh, what do you mean? Because of it, it weird, is it's so weird. Wrong. Because it's, super it's weird. the weirdest. Okay. Yeah.
2: But now it lets me have a lot of jokes that are like, yeah, I like my tea. Like, I like your men. Yeah. <laughs> 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 just felt that was implicit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this week we're talking about. Times when you were asked to speak for Muslims and your answer was, nah. I'll ask my panelists what they're thinking about and a little later on, I'll tell a story about my name. That's all coming up. But first, we're going to play a few rounds of a game called Halal or Not. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. You guys made yourself laugh (laughs) So Halal or Not is going to be a segment Where I basically give you guys A couple of topics Or things or objects And you're going to have to Like an over or under You're going to say whether it's halal or not Um, And of course it's not binding You know, It's just your own personal opinion Um, Mm -hmm. We're going to start with Nabiha And then we'll go to Johanna And then we'll go back and forth Sounds good Um, Nabiha foodies
2: Haram. Haram to be a foodie. Why is it haram? You're fetishizing the food. Oh I say this as a harami <laughs> that's... foodie. That, that's but it's not it's not good. It's not a good look.
0: Johanna iPhone 7.
1: Oh, totally haram. As a tech reporter, I find it absolutely ridiculous that you're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars like putting together this announcement for a phone that people don't even want. They don't want these new features. Why are you making me buy a $200 headphone? All of it is haram. Just no, don't do it.
0: Agreed. I just can't even deal with the lack of headphones, Jack. I don't I I mean, need like, it.
1: I, for me particularly, like I can't be on a subway like wearing a hijab and have headphones in and like ignore people. And you know, like I need them to know that I'm, I have headphones in so that people aren't approaching me. Like that whole, the wires are particularly helpful in
2: avoiding people.
0: That's a really good point.
2: That's real. I hadn't thought of that.
0: Not halal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nabiha, frosted mini wheats. Frosted <gasps> mini wheats. <laughs>
1: Frosted mini-wheats. Wait, why did you laugh when you asked her that? Is there a backstory? Oh,
2: is there a backstory? (laughs) So, frosted mini-wheats was something that many people in the Southern California Muslim community loved and cherished. Until one uncle at Jummah stands up and says, Brothers, sisters, I have an announcement. Frosted (laughs) mini-wheats. And literally everyone's like, stop, 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 stop. Do not tell us anything. Don't say it. Don't say it. Because once you say it, now we know and we can't eat them. And they're real cheap at Costco. Also, (laughs) P.S., delicious. Yeah. And he has no humanity. And he tells everyone that there is, in fact, gelatin in the delicious. Yes. The frosted part is basically just pig juice, according to him. (laughs) And now, in my mind, forever haram and also forever traumatized. They were I delicious. I eat frosted
1: mini weeds as a snack because I'm a 12 year old and I put cereal in a cup and I sit at my desk <laughs> and I eat frosted mini weeds and I only eat the frosted side.
2: Yeah, so now I'm that uncle to you.
1: Oh I just ruined God. your life.
2: Uncle Nabiha yeah. is so rude. The chain continues.
0: <laughs> the ignorance is bliss when yeah. it comes to her. Own no, things. totally.
1: Because if you don't know, then you don't know, and you're you're totally cool.
2: And there was always that one auntie who would come into the class at Masjid School and be like, "Let me tell you all the things that you cannot have at the Eid." Party. You cannot have your rice krispie treats. Mm. You cannot have any delicious cereal. Oh, gummy bears? Is that a thing you like? Nope, haram. You can't have anything, and it's terrible. And no, I don't totally. want to be that person.
0: I had but a friend yeah. once. I made a salad, and I was about to serve it, and she goes, "Did you put Dijon mustard in that? No, <laughs> what? I was like, shut up. Uh, I'm gonna what? stop
2: talking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not now. Sorry, sorry.
2: Uncle, sit down. Stop talking."
0: <laughs> She waited no. till I served it, guys. Oh my god! No. Wait, what? what, a what rude what's, what's
2: wrong with Dijon mustard?
0: I guess there's alcohol in it, but you're not gonna get drunk off of it. If
2: someone yeah. gets drunk off of Dijon mustard, as a community, we should intervene for other reasons. Yeah, not the alcohol reasons. Also,
0: if you could get drunk off Dijon
1: mustard, you'd see like 18 year olds or 16 year olds like buying Dijon mustard <laughs> by the bulk. Yeah, you know, it's like, like the new syrup.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, Johanna mustaches.
1: Without beards,
0: yes, mustache oh, not
1: halal. Sorry, I'm looking around. <laughs> he has a beard. <laughs>
2: you, need, you need the beard yeah. to make it halal. Solely the mustaches matters. are
1: so ridiculous. Like the, you, it, I feel like it takes more effort to just grow out a mustache than to just let the whole thing grow and then groom it a little bit.
0: Okay, I respect the mustache a little bit. I understand uh, the hesitation. Mm, okay, like, I'm not gonna lie. I, when I lived in India, I oh, definitely, no. <laughs> definitely everyone else had a mustache and thought it was weird that I had a beard so to blend in. I gave myself a mustache, and it was great. It was but really, really good. I think
1: m- mustache-beard combo is good. But yeah. I think mustache alone is
0: weird.
2: Beard alone with no mustache looks weirdly naked. Oh. Yeah. you ha- It's a package deal. You need
0: both. Beards alone with no mustache, definitely, absolutely, completely haram. No yeah. one should ever <laughs> do that. can't do it. Let not me not throw allowed. a
1: curveball at you. What about orange beard <laughs> no mustache? That's
2: yeah, a classic. That's,
0: <laughs> that's a classic. <laughs> the
2: orange beard. Oh, oh God. Just, why? It's, what's,
0: the, what's the orange beard, guys? We, it's, it's henna. It's henna, right? Yeah. I always thought that was really their hair color. I I, was, <laughs> I definitely did for years.
1: There's just like a weird subset of South Asians that are genders. Yeah. <laughs>
2: like, it's, it's They came from Ireland. It's fine. Yeah. Muslims are everywhere. It's okay. Yeah. Don't worry about that, uncle.
1: No, it's it was always so bizarre to me. Just just go gray. Stay
2: gray. But there's definitely uncles who look in the mirror and they're like, hmm, yes. Looks this good. is better. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah,
0: I almost considered trying it. Also, I'm weird. I like oh to try God. the weird uncle things. This is that's a great why my ta-
2: time because we learned so much about you that you <laughs> otherwise would never
0: tell us. Uh, that's why my handle is Rad Brown Dads. I appreciate the dad, dad aesthetic.
2: If you ever let me back here, I will just slander you by saying he's sitting here with an orange beard yeah. right now. <laughs> no mustache. No mustache. Nobody just the know. beard. I don't know what to do about this. I dislike. Turn off.
0: Nabiha, what are you thinking about this week?
2: I just read this NPR article about a Yale study that came out looking at preschool teachers. So when these teachers expect someone to act out in class, their eyes linger on black boys. Hmm. And they had this eye tracking software and they could just see that these teachers gravitated towards looking at these little boys. And to me, it's atrocious for all of the reasons, you know, that we know. Uh, It is a terrible reminder of implicit bias, also a thing that we all know exists. But sort of the larger link to sort of how I've been feeling about the election and just the burning trash fire that's 2016 is that that kind of implicit bias, right? That it is so pervasive. It's in preschool teachers, not just Mm -hmm. the cops. Mm -hmm. We know know the cops have a problem, but it's the teachers, it's the electorate, it's the people that want this fascist tangerine to now be our president. (laughs) It's everywhere. And what that means is that our work is so broad and large in ways that I think I had never really thought about Mm. and so this week has felt sort of heavy in that way that there's a there's a lot to be done I don't know how to do it I definitely want to watch more Buffy the Vampire Slayer on Netflix but it feels a little Mm. irresponsible so there's a lot of like serious stuff on my mind this week
0: Johanna, what are you thinking about this week? Well, it's
1: interesting. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that because you're hitting on the fact that, you know, our jobs in the media is so important now and our roles that we're playing in the platform that we have should be used in, or can be used in a particular way and have sort of a responsibility um, to use it in a way that helps, I don't know get rid of this dude. I don't know if it's at all possible. But so I was listening to another podcast yesterday called The Long Form Podcast, and they were interviewing A.J. Delario, who is the ex-editor of Gawker, who has been sued by Hulk Hogan, which who was backed by Peter Thiel. Um, and he was talking about, you know, not just sort of the legal the ease of the, the case, but more so the emotional toll that it mm. took on him, as well as the financial toll that it took on him. Um, because, you know, he sort of he like woke up one morning and there there was a hold on his bank account and he went to check what was going on and he had been charged $230 million mm. <laughs> because he owed that from this case. And so I thought about that because I knew I was coming on this podcast with Nabiha. And Nabiha, and a little bit of backstory, we worked together at BuzzFeed and I was a tech reporter and I would write about Uber and Lyft and stuff like that. And Nabiha's job was basically to make sure that I did not get sued. <laughs> <laughs> and so after listening to that podcast, I was like, I'm so thankful for you, always have been, Aww. but also my bank account and probably my mom like is like super <laughs> thankful that you exist. Um, but there, there is like a larger issue here where, you know, people with a lot of money who are already empowered because they have a lot of money mm-hmm. now feel more empowered in the fact that they can silence a media organization. And we can argue about like the actual ethics of the article and things like that. But at the same time, like the, the bottom line is this really rich dude in like the shadow of the night funded a, a a lawsuit that had nothing to do with his story right, right. to silence a media organization. And this is happening in the context of the larger issue of Donald Trump, who doesn't like media in, to begin with. And so it's, it's a little bit terrifying of a time to be not only like Muslims, journalists, women, just, you know, people. And mm-hmm. I don't know, nothing happy, apparently, is what I've been thinking about. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, it's... On the media side, I think both about the penalties for speaking, like the Gawker example, and then also all of the people who can speak with no allegiance or responsibility to the truth. Yeah. Right. So people who are talking about Hillary having a body double or, you know, the ever present birthers or whatever, like truth is not a mooring to reality anymore. And that working in media feels really it just feels so complicated. Yeah. Like, what is your responsibility to the truth? How do you even begin to fight when the common ground isn't fact? Right.
0: Well, I'm actually this whole week, you know, I have been thinking about the podcast, <laughs> but because that's, you know, this is going to be. Uh, our first episode, and I wanted to make sure the tone was right. And you guys did a great job talking about a lot of the things that I'm thinking about, which is just, you know, as like a Muslim writer or a Muslim, somebody, a visible Muslim, somebody who's out there and, you know, has a Muslim name and people are reading your writing or you're, you're speaking at places, what's your responsibility to speaking for Muslims? Um, one of my first experiences doing that was uh, like my mom had me do interfaith stuff. How nice. Um and it was not nice. <laughs> no. Oh. I mean it was like she basically had me do she had me write down um a speech on misconceptions about Islam. I was in middle school. She said you have to like figure out some concepts that will ha- help you explain things to people who don't know anything about Islam. And this was in Saginaw, Michigan right after 9/11. My community was majority Pakistani, but there was other groups there too. There was some East African immigrants. There were some Arab immigrants. Um, There was also this uh, Nation of Islam community that had been there since the 70s. And uh, my mom made all the children who were teenagers at that time do this interfaith thing. She was trying to prepare us uh, to go speak at all these different schools and churches. Um, I was 13 years old and insecure about everything, but I was totally confident I wrote a good speech. But inevitably, the questions would always be this thing that didn't feel like it was even based in facts. A lot of times I would get asked, where's Osama bin Laden? I would be like, here are all the misconceptions. They'd be like, yes, but where are the terrorists? And I was like, I live in Michigan. You know, I've been to school with you and all that they're
2: in my closet it's okay don't worry about it yeah
0: i'm definitely hiding him i feel like a lot of my life has been sort of defined by not having to do that anymore Mm -hmm. but still feeling like that responsibility of speaking uh for and about muslims and it seems like such a um complicated territory and you know I think we, I, I would love to hear stories from you guys about moments where you guys were asked to, you know, speak for Muslims and it gave you pause maybe. And like learning to say no in that cir- circumstances and other times where you had to say yes. Um, Nabiha, you want to start? Mm-hmm. Sure.
2: I have to say that when I was much younger, when these questions first started coming in around the same time that I was not as eloquent as you are, I felt like it was so uncomplicated. Mm-hmm. If I just show them that I am normal and Mm. that I know other normal people, it will all be okay, and you'll stop asking me stupid questions like where's Osama Bin Laden? Mm -hmm. And then I found the more I would answer the questions, the more it felt like if you give a mouse a cookie, right? Mm. Like the questions devolve into, but you seem normal. How do I know that other ones aren't? Mm. And that process of realizing that not all of the questions were good faith, but some were and you're never gonna know ahead of time. Sometimes you'll know. Sometimes you'll know ahead of time if someone's asking good faith or not. But it's hard to discern from time zero, right? Is this a person who's just never met a Muslim before and they want to know what mm-hmm. you're like and, like, whether you secretly have scales and there's, like, a Muslim <laughs> hive mind that, like, we're all connected and we know what they're thinking. Um, but I do think that there were times where there were probably just, like, a well-meaning fellow Girl Scout who wants to know, like, What's up with Muslims? Yeah. Like, what are mm-hmm. you doing? More recently, so I'm a free speech lawyer, and it's what I do. It's what I've committed my life to. I find it fascinating. Every time there is a perceived clash of free speech and Muslimness, so whether it's a cartoon or some anything related to speech, right, um, I get a lot of questions that start off with, so what do Muslims think about this? As if we're like, well, we got together in our big club and we decided we should probably kill you for cartoons, right? Like there's that weird presumption in the question. And then often I feel that people are like, but how do you reconcile this conflict, right? Because you are a Muslim, so you must hate all of these things. And yet you represent the First Amendment. How is this possible? And in the beginning of those, like with the first set of Danish cartoons, which I think 2006, 2007, I can't recall, um, my response was just to opt out. Right. Like, this is too complicated. I'm not repping the Muslims. Like, I'm I, assuming
0: this is in casual conversation. Yeah, in casual
2: conversation. I just don't want to deal with it. Right. So I'm not I'm not going to go there. And as I've sort of professionally been in more spaces where not only am I the only Muslim, I'm one of the few women and I'm definitely the only woman of color. It feels like I have to say something. Right. So I have to say. Yes, as a matter of free speech, I can conceptually defend these problematic cartoons like Charlie Hebdo but note your own hypocrisy a a writer, an illustrator at Charlie Hebdo was fired for anti-Semitic cartoons Mm -hmm. Right. so actually there are boundaries on speech you've just decided that Muslims don't avail themselves of those protections but other groups do and then it turns into like well you can't be objective because you're a Muslim so you don't know (laughs) and so my objectivity is constantly on trial Mm. so even in those moments where I decide okay there's enough of a perceived collision of things that I identify as and believe in that I should like maybe talk about it then it immediately blows up in your face mm. yeah no, I
1: mean I've always felt that way too and I've I've when I went into journalism I didn't really know what kind of journalism I'd be going into but I very explicitly did not want to go into politics because it's so difficult to be so outwardly anything like mm-hmm. any one identity and then not be seen as having some sort of implicit bias um, I started wearing hijab when I was in fourth grade. Um, and I originally grew up in Ozone Park, Queens. And so it was like, a, you know, a fairly diverse neighborhood. There were Bengalis, there were people who are from Puerto Rico, Guyana, Guyana, the Philippines. And so there wasn't sort of a need there to like constantly have to explain myself. But then my family did the Asian migration to Long Island. Um, and I went to a school that was, you know, at that time, my neighborhood now there is, is, like basically Little India. But um, when I when, when we first went there, it was largely, you know, middle class, like white people. And I was in fourth grade and I decided to start wearing hijab because I was going to a new school and I planned on wearing it anyway. And, um, you know, I felt like I had to explain who I was constantly. And so I, as a fourth grader, still had no real perception or no real understanding of, you know, who I was as a Muslim yet or my interpretation of Islam and hijab and things like that. So a lot of it was like, this is what my dad told me. So I'm going to tell you that. Um, But eventually, as years go by, like, I'm still in a largely, you know, white environment. And I feel like I always felt like I had to explain myself. And it's interesting now, even though I work in an in, in an industry where it's largely, you know, white men in, who I'm covering in tech and white men who are writing about tech. Um, I think that I have kind of the luxury of working in media among people who understand more nuances than people outside of media might, and it's a bubble that I operate in. Um, and I and I totally see that the privilege in that. Um, so I don't feel like I ever have to like speak. For Muslims as much now as I used to when I was mm-hmm. younger, but my dad actually is part of this like Islamic Leadership Council of New York, and um, I, my, I I joke that my side hustle is to help him. Um, <laughs> and I mean, he he'll ask me his, for advice like or his like, ghostwriter? like not, I mean, no, no, don't say that, <laughs> get fired. Um, but no, he'll send me things. He'd be like, does this like this? Does this sound okay or blah blah blah? And then he'll or he'll like talk over things that they're doing with me, um, and. You know, every time there is some sort of terrorist attack uh, that, you know, a Muslim happens to be behind or a so-called Muslim, who knows, whatever, however you want to define that, the entire – and the Muslim Leadership Council of New York is literally like a conglomeration of all of the different masajids in mm. New York. And so they all get together and they're like, so how what statement are we putting out? And um, – at the muslim day parade they there was you know a speech where someone was saying that in the entire history of islam in america muslims haven't condemned terrorism which is like one absolutely false like we've constantly condemned terrorism but two and this is what i tell my father all the time you know we don't need to necessarily say something every time there is a terrorist attack like why are we taking ownership of something that's not ours it's not a product of us you know our community this is not something that we did not something that we pervade and we don't constantly have to be like Okay, we're really sorry about that, you know, and Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because the sort of the other end of it is that people will say, well, how come you never condemn terrorism? And it's like such a weird balance to strike. But we're at the point now, I think, you know, in 2016, where I don't think we should have to. I don't I think we're at the point where we can say we're here all the 90,000 times that we've condemned terrorism. We're not over it. We've made it very clear that we are not for terrorism. Mm -hmm. Let's move on now terrorism is not ours you know we don't have to speak every time there's a terrorist attack do you feel like
0: there's a generational difference as well because part of like what i was describing with my thing my with my story was you know i didn't feel that pressure to explain things i like didn't want to talk about it at all but my mother was like you have to go out there and say things because otherwise no one will
2: not for everyone, but at least for my parents, like they came here, right? Mm-hmm. They came of age in another place and then they came here. And there's this feeling of wanting to justify, like, I belong here. I'm here. You you took me, right? right? For me, I feel like I was born here. Yeah. This is mine. I don't need to say anything to you. Mm-hmm. And to your point, I feel like... There was a sort of like there's a naive approach to this in the beginning where they're like, all right, what do we do? What do we do? Everyone's getting really mad at us. so We haven't condemned it. We're going to condemn it as if condemning it would actually quiet these people. Yeah. Which now we know it doesn't. Right. It's
0: in fact became in response to that, like there was almost like plugging your fingers in your ear and saying, la, 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 la. And then then expanding the rhetoric. It's become like so much more.
2: Oh, it's so much worse now. And like it's so layered now, right? It's not as easy as like, no, no, we we apologize. Sorry, it's not us. And they're like, oh, yeah, cool, cool, cool. We're good now. That's definitely not what's happening. I think maybe that's what everyone thought was going to happen 10 years ago. 15 years ago yeah
1: but there's an aspect of it that's like when we apologize for it we're like implicitly taking mm-hmm. ownership of it and that's the part that i hate so much it's like yeah why why am i under any obligation to apologize for something that's not mine i don't even know this person this is this happened in like florida it happened in california it happened across the world this is not mine to condemn it's something that even in talking to my dad about it they just they're like but what but what would we do otherwise And I'm like I don't, I don't really know what the answer to that is you know
2: also where does it stop like yeah. i'm a curvy brunette from southern california i should apologize for the kardashians way more than i apologize (laughs) for terrorism right like i'm closer to one of those than the other yeah and it's definitely calabasas
0: (laughs) so that that's like one aspect of this as which is of course responding to the news but there's also like the cultural production aspect of it is like how do you create things that are reflective of the diversity of Muslims, you know, like we're all 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 three of us here. We're we're children of immigrants, basically Mm -hmm. children of uh, South Asian and and in Johanna's case, also Filipina. But we're only one part of the Muslim community and our voices are maybe over overrepresented. Muslims can be Arab or black or European or Asian, white, whatever. And because the identity is so intensely in the spotlight, there's this desire to simplify the identity into one thing. But there is a need to create culture, to make music, to be in the news, to break stereotypes, as much as I hate that phrase. And it feels a lot of the time we celebrate Muslims that are doing things like, I'm here, and I'm doing a thing. And because I'm Muslim, it's, it's powerful in itself. But I think it's more complicated than that, and there's a lot of responsibility to a lot of different types of people. So what I'm curious about is, is there anyone who's doing the cultural production thing right? Obviously no one is perfect, but who comes close?
2: Oh, that's so hard. I mean, it this, is is, hard. <laughs> this is where I want to claim Aziz, but I know he's not. he's not part of our crew. Um, Aziz
0: Ansari. Yes,
2: Aziz is <laughs> also does. my dad's name. So, oh, sorry, uh, if you want him? you yeah. can <laughs> just claim him. No, but it is. I mean, just thinking but ha- about can't,
0: can't we claim Aziz though?
2: I would, I would, I would yeah. like. You know what? As a Muslim named person, yeah, yeah, he's rep, he's representing something. I mean, right? if if people with turbans now represent
1: Muslims, like Aziz <laughs> Ansari <laughs> can represent Muslims. That's fair. All right. So,
2: thank you for giving me <laughs> the,
0: the room. He's actually written a lot about. Yeah. like he very clearly will say, "I identify as atheists but. Trump's policies affects people like my parents who are Muslim right you know and he sort of recognizes his own truth
2: it's that recognizing his own truth and speaking about his own life with nuance that I love and look at and I'm like you're doing it right you're representing you you're not trying to be everything to all people when people ask you you'll say like yeah that's not that's not me I'm not for all right and I like that he's doing it sort of outside of the specter of some of the stuff we've been talking about, about surveillance and national security, because so much of a per- very particular American Muslim lived experience has been within that context, but it's not everybody's. Yeah, um, I remember when I was in law school, I did this like, know your rights training for people if the cops show up at your door, right? And I there were a lot of different people who showed up. And uh, it's
0: designed for Muslims mostly? or Yeah, it- designed for Muslims. In terms of like, uh, counterterrorism type exactly. Uh, like what,
2: what do you do when the FBI is like, hello?
0: Right, yeah.
2: <laughs> Let's chat, right? Yeah. How should you comport yourself? Oh my God, cry.
0: <laughs> Shut the door. door. Shut the door. door. Oh God, what's happening? <laughs> right. Close the
2: door, call your, <laughs> call your lawyer. Um, And it was great because there were these um African Americans who were in the neighborhood who were Muslim who, who came because they heard about it at Jummah and one woman comes up to me afterwards and she's like, you know, we've been living with this stuff mm-hmm. since the 70s. Right. And she's like, great job. It was great advice. But like this is our lived experience. Yeah, yeah. And for me, that was the first moment where I was like, like head explosion. The idea of like policing and being under the scrutiny of law enforcement is not a thing that brown Muslims are experiencing mm-hmm. in a vacuum that mm-hmm. no one else, no other Muslims have felt before. Right. It's so important to me to try to remember those other aspects of lived experience of the American Muslim experience, and and just sort of break out of this like South Asian, like uh, defined by terrorism, defined by surveillance, like oh no lens. Even though that's all important, and if that's someone's truth, I want them to speak it. But the reason I'm like down with down with my friend Aziz, I'm sorry, is that uh, he's just speaking to his own life. Like he likes pasta, okay? He's gonna go off to Italy and make it at the end of the season. You do you, and yeah. he likes
0: bacon. He loves talking. He eats a lot of. He talks a lot about his love for pork.
2: I mean. <laughs> I can't get down with the love for pork, but the love for bacon format in things I'm really into. Yeah, It is crispy and fatty. How are you going to hate on that? Nothing is wrong with that. Everyone, if you have a human tongue, you like
0: crispy, fatty (laughs) things. It's true.
2: If
1: you can say not all men, like, can you not conceive of the fact that all Muslims aren't the same? Like, Mm. how is that so difficult for you? And so all the stories that even, you know, first person narratives, even if it's not meant to be told that way is sort of perceived as a, an exception to the rule as opposed mm-hmm. to one of sure, many, sure, you know? Totally. And it's kind of difficult, it particularly because people, like, pat you on the back way too much. They're like, oh, thank you for speaking for our people. I'm like, bro, I just wrote about, like, how one time someone talked to me about my hijab. I'm not a hero. Like, the fact that we're so thirsty for that kind of representation, I think, is like, a huge issue. You have to, like, capture the diversity of, like, the Muslim community. And it's like, but how can you? you will never be able to. Yeah. No offense. No, no, I agree. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I, I came to that conclusion. And yeah. a lot of what I end up doing is, you know, sort of crowdsourcing different opinions as opposed to like me being the, yeah, the, you know, yeah. the voice itself. It's this, you know, sort of chorus of voices.
2: Right. To that point, I think maybe the only way you do it is you make room for others, right? Yeah. Like it's you have to just shine theory that forever, like bring other people in, bring other people up, make sure all the voices are there and just don't hog the mic. Yeah. This is great advice for the podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If we have to, like, what are some better ways? I, I, we're kind of were talking about it now, but what are some better ways we can speak in these situations? Like, if you know, if you're, a, if there's a young Muslim listening to this podcast, you know, and they're in that situation, what's your advice for them?
2: I think it would be to make very clear that you're sp- speaking about your own lived experience, which sounds like things that you guys have already done. So saying, you know, I'm from Southern California and Pakistani Muslim, and like it looks like this yeah. to mm-hmm. me. Uh, especially being conscious of how you represent yourself to the outside. I think there is a real, speaking of thirst, there is a real thirst for like, what do the Muslims think? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's happening? Because they think we have this hive mind. dollars also. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yes, that is true. So they're so curious that that question is out there. And if you don't make it perfectly clear that you're not speaking on behalf of all of them, It'll get taken that way, and you may not want it to be that way. Right. So just specify, like this is where I come from. This is what I've seen. I totally agree.
1: One, my advice would be: I don't really know what to do. I can give you ninety thousand things not to do, but one, best revenge is your paper. So work hard, play hard. So true. <laughs> so true. Like, first of all, your first priority is not to speak for all Muslims. It's like take care of yourself, do your thing,
0: fair be enough, successful. Fair
1: but two, like I, like I was saying, I grew up and was sort of raised in a lot of white environments and i didn't really have a lot of muslim people my age or even around Mm. my age to talk to and turn to until i became like a professional journalist and like at buzzfeed we ended up having this like really wonderful muslim community like to turn to it was called halal feed feed. (laughs) (laughs) having that outlet was really important for me because even now sometimes i'll i'll be like about to tweet a rant and i will like Gchat Ahmed and I'm like does this sound okay am I right or am I wrong Mm -hmm. and like talk through these ideas about you don't have to take on the role of representing all of Islam you don't have to take on the role of representing all of Muslim Americans or even for me like I can I can say oh I'm a hijabi in mainstream media but I'm not I by no means represent all hijabis Mm -hmm. and we are all so different even in that bucket and so You know, feel free to have conversations with people who also might be going through something similar, who are in the same environment as you and may be able to help you hash out your ideas before you go out and be like, here's all the things that Muslims want, need and are like, you know. Yeah, Johanna Mm -hmm. and I used to do
0: a lot of passing back and forth ideas, just like we would (laughs) read something and we'd say, does this seem right to you? Is my gut true? Because like. There's different things yeah. that like you we're have to recognize your to. biases. Yeah, yeah. A lot sure. of times we wouldn't agree. <laughs> no, yeah,
2: but that's a good thing. No, no, right? Totally. It's a good thing that you don't necessarily agree on it. It's a reminder that not everyone agrees on everything. Yeah,
1: to a certain extent, I'm some people's only exposure to Muslim voices. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't take that lightly, and so now I'm just like, don't tweet every angry thing that you have to say.
2: I'm angry a lot, so <laughs> just the the burden of being publicly Muslim. It yeah is.
0: Yeah, just the name.
2: It's know. just the name, right? Just yeah, having the name really is so that's, hard. That's
1: what, like you can just be brown and like you're immediately affiliated with being Muslim. Yeah, it's like insane. Yeah. And and that not not that, I mean that is insane also. But like even brown people are sort of now implicated with like the Muslim the Muslim ID in in all of its negative connotations.
2: I definitely have to say that you guys are speaking about Twitter so much. I mm-hmm. rarely say anything on Twitter, and when I think about doing so. I think about all of the, okay, well, you're this type of person in the public space. This is what you do. And like thinking about being like a a Muslim and being a good Muslim in public space is often so chilling that I'm like, yeah, I don't, that tweet's not that good. So let's let, tomorrow, I'll try the Twitters again tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) There's just so many angry things I want to say, and that the retaliation for them isn't just, Oh my god, I just was angry to everybody. Yeah. But also, like, for real, there are people who end up on these crazy white supremacist lists. No, totally. Like, That's like the a thr- the yeah. threat is real. And those angry eggs come for you on yeah. Twitter and it's real crazy. And there's just a lot to muddle through when you're talking about speaking in public being identifiably. Muslim yeah. Yeah, to other people. There's a lot to think there. You do need a support network, I think. And so just like reaching out to other voices isn't just good for the a chorus of voices makes everything better, but like mm. actually having that support group like helps people totally.
1: speak too. Yeah. Like if you are a young Muslim reporter and you want help, hit me up at JM <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
0: I mean any of us, I think. Yeah, really. yeah totally. Like, yeah. You I'm, know, I'm at Rad Brown Dad's on Twitter. You know? You're
2: literally, a dad. I'm, I'm at <laughs> literally
0: not a dad, but
2: <laughs> I, I found that very confusing for very long. <laughs> a lot of say.
0: people, yeah, yeah, a lot of people are like, "So, how old are your kids?" I'm like, "I don't have any kids. I just think brown dads you need more just, need next more time love. you should just be like four and three. Just, <laughs> just, <laughs> it's fine. Just start picking up photos yeah. on my phone and just start showing. <laughs> so them every them. time you
1: have food stains on your clothes, you could be like, "Yeah, my three-year-old did that." <laughs> good. It's a good excuse.
0: Do you guys want to hear my chutba? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> okay, so one one segment we have been thinking about is that I will do a chutba. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> you know what a chutba is, obviously, yeah, yeah, which yeah, of is course. like something that uh, your un- like an uncle does at the end of every during it's every t- Friday yeah, 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 prayer. Yeah, yeah. I know you know what a chutba is. I was like, you've seen like, me
2: at Namaz before. Like, <laughs> I just saw you at eat. That's true. Like, we didn't want like, each other. You oh, yes. that's oh, so dare you.
1: fun. Yeah. That's, like, really fun. It is really I've yeah. fun. I've never ran into someone that I, like, I like oh, and so I'm friends fun. with. <laughs> yeah.
0: Anyhow, so basically, they're not going to be, like, religious khutbas, obviously. They're just going to be stories. Okay. So I have a story about, I'm just going to tell sort of, like, a narrative about my name. And the different ways I've learned to pronounce it that I think kind of tie into some of the themes of around the show.
1: Oh, good. Because I've been pronouncing your name different than you have. So well, that's OK. <laughs> that's kind of a,
0: Yeah. Anyhow. So uh, growing up, uh, I didn't know that there was w- more than one way to say my name. My mother and father are Pakistani. And like many Muslim children, I have a name with Arabic roots. Uh. And I actually had three, Ahmad Ali Akbar. And uh, my parents would say it the Pakistani way, which is Ahmad Ali Akbar. Um, And so, you know, my first experience of somebody saying my name differently was I went to preschool. And the teacher who I'm sure thought she was being like very inclusive was basically like, I want to make sure that we say your name right. And I'd be like, Ahmad. And she'd be like, Amid. And I'd be like, <laughs> uh that's not right. And she was like, okay, okay. Uh, why don't we get all in a circle? Oh, and no. every child in the room will say oh your God. name. Okay? And you're gonna pick which one is the closest to your name. So I was like, okay. So I stood in the center and I was like, uh, my name is Ahmed. And then it went around and it was like, Amid, Ahmed. Uh, and you know, it's just like horrible. It was just like a oh, whole. I'm whole like in shock. Le- yeah, it was like I just sat there while 26 children said my name in a different way for the first time.
2: That must have been so creepy. It was like, very everything creepy. Everything about it is like
0: a Especially because um,
2: just looking at you. Because yeah. they were definitely looking at and you. And
0: some of the kids were also basically uh, <laughs> definitely using it to joke around. Like they weren't Lella <laughs> like a <"Ameet."> mood. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyhow, so then basically. So
1: old sounding kid. <laughs> <But> come on. <laughs>
0: So I was like, I was like, uh, I guess that kid. And then apparently, my mom said, and the teacher told her this. She, I don't remember this. She said that I said, "You people are from another world." And I just looked down and was sad. Aww. So anyhow, that was like that was like the first ex- time I ever experienced somebody else saying my name differently. And I was like convinced that everyone was saying my name wrong. And I would just say Ahmad and like let them sort of mangle my name. Um, and you know, I just, I just accepted that that was the case. But then as I got older, I, uh, met some Arab students and they Arab like, you know, high school, in high school and middle school, I would meet, um, some Arab kids who would tell me that I was saying my name the wrong way. They'd be like, actually, your name is Ahmed. And I'd be like, Oh God, that's what I was saying. Well, no, 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 no. But let's 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 go there, right? Like it's it was a whole process. Yeah. They would tell me that I was, and some people would just be like, would just they wouldn't say I said my name wrong. They would just say Ahmed. I was like, okay. For other people, it's Ahmed. You know, it's not just it's like that's an acceptable way of saying it for them. And you know, there's levels, obviously, about how, different ways people would say my name. But I basically stuck with Ahmed until high school. I wouldn't say Ahmed. But then, like, one time I was, uh, I was like, f- doing some cold calls. Uh, I had, like, a, a job where I was calling people. And I'd be like, hi, this is Ahmed from... And they'd be like, who? Because it was, you know, mostly, like, older... It was mostly older white folks. And I'd, they'd, I'd be like, Ahmed. They'd be like... Who? And I'd be like, uh, Ahmed? And they'd be like, oh, okay, you should have just said that the first time. <laughs> so I said it like 500 times. I said, hi, my name is Ahmed. 500 times. When I came out of that, I started calling myself Ahmed.
2: I've oh, now oh. forgotten what your name actually I is. I'm like, I can't. Like, no matter way, how I say it. I'm like, I can't. Hey, rad brown dads. Rad brown dads.
0: <laughs> um, and so basically... I. In high school, I, like, said Ahmed so often that, like, even my Muslim friends would also call me Ahmed. Like, I had these Indian and Kurdish friends who were both Muslim, and we would all say our names, like, sort of Americanized. It was, like, Ahmed, Aryan, and Munim, uh, even though it was, like, Munim and Ahmed, you know? (laughs) Um, So then, like, when I went to college, I sort of, uh, I was like, I'm restarting this. Ahmed is bad. Maybe people understand Ahmed. So I actually started calling myself Ahmed. Oh, my God. I know. The reason why is because a lot of people would see my name and they would say Ahmed when they first see it. Before I said anything, they'd be like Ahmed. And the KH, no good, no good. Um, So I was like, I'm going to go with Ahmed. So I did that for about a year. But like every Pakistani person was so disappointed in me. They're like, you're ashamed of yourself. (laughs) Like, why are you calling yourself Ahmed when you know your name is actually Ahmed, you know? um and it was just like i don't know just my name was traumatizing um but then like as i got older and i would meet people from different places you know from turkey from um you know from ethiopia from west africa from you know or even like um i grew up with a lot of black converts from the nation who also said my name differently Um, And I came to realize that it's like kind of I would started to switch depending on who I would say it to. You
2: code switched your own name. Yeah, (laughs) I did kind of
0: start code switching my own name. So which is why a lot of people are confused. But Mm. to me, it's like as long as like it's not the Amud situation, you know, at least the vowels are right. I'm like, that's okay. It's kind of serves as a good metaphor for how Muslims in America operate we're all in multiple different spheres you know you know you're unless you have isolated yourself in some way and you've like you know maybe if you're somebody who has decided mostly to stick to your american identity or to your south asian identity a lot of us if you don't want to abandon any of those things you are you you exist in multiple spaces so yeah i basically have learned to be okay with switching I don't want to say code switching because I feel like there's so much more to code switching. You know what I mean? But I do switch and I, I have come to like accept that it's like it's okay for people to say my name differently depending on context because we all live that process all the time. And it's come to the point where like I see myself as Ahmed, as Ahmed, sometimes even as Ahmed. Like when I go back home, my Muslim friends call me Ahmed.
2: But no Ahmed, right?
0: Yeah. And, you know, you just have to adapt to different groups. And so as a result, I'm sure my guests are also going to be confused as how to say my name. But I just want to say it's OK. I'm happy with however my guests say my name, as long as you respect my right to change it up when I say it. And, you know, that it's still me. You know, it's there's not a right way to be Ahmad. Like, there's no right way to be Muslim in America. Okay, so I wanna thank Nabiha and Johanna for being on the first episode of See Something Say Something. Yay! I, I can't I can't believe we did it, guys. I know, I mean, I'm so proud of us. This, this is the best.
1: I spent that entire time trying to pronounce your name right <laughs> the whole time. there's I no was, right
0: I, I was like how do I say Ahmed. it uh, now, now I can't say it, your name Ahmed guys Ahmed, Ahmed is okay <laughs> no but what is the right way
1: <laughs>
2: there's no right way
1: no though. what is the way that you
2: pronounce
0: my it my parents say Amed. Ahmed Ahmed
1: um, okay cool you're amazing is, thank you you are a really you. great I, host I'm,
0: you're the best and you I'm brought okay. us tea Nabiha where can people find you and your work
2: they can find me at Nabiha Sayyid I will respond to you even if I'm scared to actually tweet out to the public
0: and Johanna how about you
2: I am a reporter for Recode. So find all my
1: articles at recode.net. Yes, we are a .net, and uh, my Twitter is at jmbooyah. The way that you would spell the sound booyah
0: with an h. Yes, right. With an h at the end. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys for being here. Thank Thank you. you. Woo!
2: Yay!
0: This episode of See Something, Say Something was produced by Eleanor Kagan and Megan Dietry. The BuzzFeed Audio Pod Squad also includes Julia Ferlin and Meg Kramer. Additional production support by Thabir Akhtar, thanks to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios. Our music is by The Kaminas, K-O-M-I-N-A-S. You can listen to their latest record, Stereotype, at gaminas.bandcamp.com. Find me on Twitter at RadBrownDads, and I also have a Tumblr called RadBrownDads. Uh, you can find my writing on BuzzFeed.com slash If you want to read about uh, my experience of going to the mosque and drinking chai every week, I have an essay also called I Don't Know Why I Pray But I Keep Trying, which you can also find on BuzzFeed. Email us at saysomething@buzzfeed.com. At and if you like the show, please rate it on iTunes. Thanks for listening.